Um, but we're looking this week at a passage of scripture, James 2, verse 14 down to verse 26. James 2, verse 14 down to verse 26. And the scripture reads, it says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. And you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. And do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham my father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the word of the Lord. The book of James is an incredibly intriguing book. Uh, much of that intrigue comes from uh, the audience to whom he writes. Uh, they were Christians who were in the middle of immense suffering. Uh, they had come to no great violence. They had lost homes and livelihoods. And James' message to this peaceful is about true faith. The suffering that they experienced, though, wasn't a trivial waste, but the means of maturation of faith in Christ Jesus and his finished work as God is at work in us, not just for um, the Christian to find joy in the material things in life, but a call to holiness and righteousness that is far greater. Uh, this particular passage in James, though, uh, is by far the most controversial. Uh, as we read this text uh, through a reformed lens, having come to understand that our saving faith in Jesus uh, comes through faith alone, by grace alone, and in Christ alone, and called to live for his glory alone, comes to a text like this, and we have to ask, how could James say this? I hope you'll find today that James isn't much concerned with uh, disputing your theological claims, but he's calling you to a reasoned faith as those who identify themselves as faithful followers of Jesus, uh, to be recognized not simply because of what we say, but to live fruitful, gospel-centered lives of faith in Jesus, and that shapes 
us in every way of life. That is what we'll call today a centered life of faith and works. A centered life of faith and works. In verse 14, we read, it says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? James' question is one that is intended to be both practical and rhetorical uh, in nature. It is a question of goodness and analysis of not only the usefulness of faith, but a call to confrontation with both its meaning and its purpose. James is a pastor, though, so he's primarily concerned with the spiritual reality of his people. He's about edification. So this question is best understood as a question of faith and how it shapes and grows us in our walk with Jesus. Notice, though, that James references his audience as my brothers. He's making a clear distinction that he is addressing the Christian community. He's talking to God's household of faith. And I want to be clear, though, that this includes both you and I as people shaped by the gospel. What is faith, though? The author of Hebrews says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So faith is forward thinking. It is uh, the resting on the assurances of the promises of God's word. It's resting on those promises, though, without the ability to see them in front of you. Uh, the world would then call this foolish, but yet for the Christian, this is essential. It's foundational to all that we believe, and we see this practice throughout Scripture. The prophet Isaiah, it was forward-thinking in his writing of the coming suffering servant, the servant that we find fulfillment in in, in places like John 3.16 as the very God in his great love for all of his creation gave his son that you and I would not die, but have eternal life. Faith, though, is described as assurance. And if we were to look up assurance in Webster's Dictionary, uh, it defines it as the state of being in a certain mind or the confidence of mind or manner. The easy freedom from self-doubt or uncertainty. Webster also then uh, gave this example, uh, the Puritan's assurance of salvation. Uh, I have to admit it doesn't always get set up so easy for a preacher, but let me just tell you that the Puritans believed that assurance was the development of a distinguished faith. Why is this important then? Because for the Puritans, there could not be any doubts in true faith. So, so get this. Assurance is the fruit that stems from the salvation of which faith is its essence. So look then at verse 15 and 16. It says, if a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Can I just then lovingly as your brother, say that if this verse is true, then there is much need for repentance. And I know this to be true because that then begins with me. 
how often do we drive around our city, we see people standing on the corners or living in deplorable conditions, and we turn our hearts away. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it like this, that we must learn to regard people less in light of what they do or are meant to do and more in light of what they suffer. The story of scripture is the story of a compassionate God at work to redeem a people completely incapable of redeeming themselves. And yet the church is far from reflecting this truth to the world. The church, the place that should be the gathering of those known for its love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, fruit, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, I can assure you that is not the reputation of the church. You know, the most common objection to Christianity to college students doesn't come from our scientific advancements. Uh, it doesn't come from philosophical understandings. No, what college students don't like about Christianity is the church. We've got we've to move past standing idly by and watching people suffer and show them the love and compassion of Jesus. Or are we going to continue to tell them to go in peace, be warmed in our shelters, and have a hot meal only to send them back out into their suffering? Or then, are we so compelled that the gospel is true that we ask ourselves, what good is that? Will we rid ourselves of our idols of comfort and privilege to be committed to meeting the needs of others, even when it costs us something? Look then at, at verse 17. It says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Uh, I love this verse because it almost, as if James is suggesting, in case uh, you hadn't realized it yet, in the clearest possible explanation, he says, faith all by itself, if it does not have works, is deader than a weekend at Bernie's. Uh, that's for those old enough to remember that one. But, but verse 18 says, uh, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. So show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. I, I love the question that James uses here. Um, because he wants to immediately dismiss the common notion that faith, faith and works are mutually exclusive. And he does this by using himself as an example. Uh, James' original audience would have likely known uh, much of his story. Uh, James was Jesus's little brother. And then in Matthew 12 is the story of Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers, uh, which would have uh, included James shows up as Jesus is teaching. And just to simply put the, the text in context, uh, know that they showed up uh, because they had come to hear of the controversy of what Jesus was teaching. Or, or maybe better yet, um, Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher said this. He says that the members of Jesus's family had come to take him because they had come to think of him um, beside himself. 
In other words, uh, they simply believed that Jesus had then lost it. Yet, it's the same James that believed that his brother was not himself in Matthew 12, who is now not only the pastor of this church, but had come to know his big brother as Lord and Savior of his life and was now by faith at work to point others to him. James was a witness to the truth of Jesus coming to earth, being born of the Virgin Mary, living a perfectly sinless life, having obeyed the God the Father in every way, and yet on the cross, he paid the penalty of sin that you and I rightfully deserve. He imputed his righteousness to us that those who by faith believe in him might see the promise of an eternity with him fulfilled. That we might rule and reign with him as he has accomplished the salvation we could not obtain ourselves, yet makes it freely available to us. As we look at verse 19, though, I think it's an incredibly uh, helpful reminder that often the, the pastoral letters uh, like James are written with specific people in mind or written to address specific circumstances within uh, the church. In verse 19, uh, it is a primary example of this. So um, the you that you see here, while it does have implications for uh, its general audience, I'm, I'm sure it's probably more intended to address um, a specific person or a specific mindset among those within the church to whom James writes. So he says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe in shudder. And, and I know there might be some of us who have yet to profess faith in Christ Jesus, and I am so grateful that you are here. I believe that the church should be a place to, to come and explore the truthfulness of the scriptures. And, and while uh, the whole Jesus thing might be difficult, uh, James' discussion of demons here uh, may be even more difficult to grasp. But on a really practical level, uh, I think you and I can both agree uh, that we see each year a ridiculous amount of money being spent to discover new life forms. And while it's pretty entertaining, uh, if we're honest, it's also been pretty fruitless. Christians do believe that other life forms do exist, but not in a Star Trek kind of way. Uh, rather, we believe that there are spiritual beings and this would be the realm, uh, so to speak, in which God exists. But also then it would be the place that Satan and his demons would exist too. This understanding then helps give categories to a God at work in the sanctification of his people, but also then uh, the very real reality uh, that there is a real enemy that comes to kill, steal, and destroy. It is because Satan is the true enemy of humanity that many come to see life as being uh, contaminated and destroyed and ruined and defiled and is filling us with lies that life is hopeless that is full of despair. 
and though Satan and the demons, the scriptures teach us are real, it's also in the scriptures expressly clear that we serve a God who is far greater. And while it's true that Satan and the demons have an irreversible destiny, know that much of their work is to convince you that the same is true for you. Despite the truth that Jesus has come to give us an abundant life, Satan comes to steal it. Yet it's by this abundant life that James calls us to live by faith and shown by our works. The terminology that James uses here in the original languages, though, reflects uh, the kind of fear that leads to a physical trembling. Uh, it's to be so paralyzed by fear that all you can do is stand there and tremble. I'd be uh, remiss with my background as an English teacher not to point out also the verb here is written in the indicative, which suggests that there is perpetual motion that is taking place. Uh, so know that the subjugation of Satan and his demons to Jesus is not something from of old or something that will happen at some point in the future, but Jesus and his sovereignty rules and reigns above it all right now, and he always has, and he always will. So fam, if, if Satan and the demons, even in their catastrophic fall and rebellion against God, know to live in the filthiness of him and can't escape it, how much more are we then called to live walking by faith, demonstrated in a centered life of faith and works? Look finally then at verses 20 through 26. It says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? And you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. The scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Ah, I want you to see that James uses here the stories of Abraham and Rahab as examples of what it means to live a centered life of faith and works. Uh, James uses these examples from the Old Testament. Uh, I love because they're an example of how scripture uh, testifies to itself. James here uses Abraham's story uh, from Genesis 15 and 6, as the text says that Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. To those who uh, may not be familiar, familiar with Abraham's story, uh, James is referring to this experience of 
covenant between God and Abraham, and the promise of the covenant is for a family that God shows Abraham will outnumber the stars. And what's unique about this, though, is that God makes this covenant promise with him uh, well after the point when this would have been considered viable. James goes beyond simply quoting Genesis, though, in reference to Abraham, uh, because he goes on to add that Abraham is called a friend of God. And just a few chapters later, in chapter uh, 18 of Genesis, um, God makes this decision uh, to destroy the city of Sodom. And Abraham knows that he has some family there, and Abraham begins to intercede with God on their behalf. And, and we see this discussion. And, and this discussion, though, is not just uh, bargaining uh, with God, but it is intended to reflect the intimacy of their relationship. Abraham is not only a servant of God, but the scripture tells us that Abraham is a friend of God. Jesus in John 15 verses 14 through 15 calls you and I to the same friendship. He says, he says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, but the servants does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Rahab is the second example of one who lives a centered life of faith and works. And yet something must be said um, about her because Rahab uh, was generally the member of the family that nobody talked about much. Uh, Rahab had one of those jobs that didn't make her uh, a role model for most of the young ladies of her day. And yet it's a remarkable reminder that God has always used the broken and the unrefined to bring about his glory. And yet the church today doesn't have many Rahabs in its membership. Rahab, even in the middle of her mess, her nominal faith and all, had enough faith to know that God is true and righteous. So when the men of God come to her for help, she had the faith to believe that God would protect she and her family. She gives shelter to the men of God, even in the face of her life being threatened. But this is not the end of Rahab's story um, because we see her again in Matthew's record of Jesus's family tree. See, Rahab the prostitute who lived a life of faith and works is in the lineage of the one who had come to save us. James concludes, though, with the thought, he says, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the true restatement of James' intended outcome to grind out this reality of faith and works by simply stating that just as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so is faith apart from works dead. And let me just close this morning by just simply asking, are you living a life centered on faith and works? No church that faith begins with trusting the finished work of Christ as the all sufficient sacrifice that turns away the righteous wrath of God. 
to live a life of faith and works, to put on full display the glorious beauty of our risen Savior. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we are so grateful for you. We're grateful for your word today from my brother James and the way that we are called to live out our faith. But not only to, to, to have faith in our hearts, but to have a faith that impacts the very way that we live, that we would live in a way that seeks to bring your glory in such a, a beautiful way that others would see it and come to faith in you. And now, Lord, I ask, Lord, that empowered by your spirit, that this word from today would bless us and transform, transform us in the days to come. And I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. <laughs>